Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry over there. Um, and it's just nice and pleasant, isn't it? Chuck and Jerry. <laughs> I mean, it smells in here. Is that what you're referencing? Yeah, gamey, I think. <laughs> yeah. How about this? We won't say who was in here Okay. just before us, but it was three men from our office, and the room smells a little gamey, a little musky. <laughs> it's <laughs> and it's hilarious. warm, and Jerry's headphones are hot, and her chair's hot, and she's so creeped out. Yeah, she's getting a little sweaty. Yeah. yeah. So um, That's the last joke I'm going to tell for this episode, by the way. You know, every time we say that, we end up like making jokes. So, yeah, let's say it. Yes, this is going to be a very serious episode, and there will be no jokes whatsoever. All right. Hopefully we can work in a a funny or two that is clearly not at anyone's expense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's got to be organic. It's got to be good. Right. It's got to be worth it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) And about each other. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, um, we're talking today, Chuck, about anorexia and bulimia, known in the slang as Anna and Mia. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah. And um, they are actually very closely related eating disorders, so much so that if you went to the big book of eating disorders, the DSM-5, and you said, DSM-5, tell me, what is the difference between Anna and Mia? The DSM-5 would just kind of shrug and be like, I don't know, man. We're not 100% sure. There are some big differences, but they are clearly connected to some underlying degree. Yeah, I mean, you know, they define anorexia as restrictive, uh, restrictive as in really restrictive, severely limited intake of food, Mm -hmm. Um, and binging and purging, which is, if you don't know what that term is, that means eating and then vomiting afterward or using uh, laxatives uh, to get that poop going really quickly. Sure. Uh, that is also under anorexia in the DSM-5, but that's also binging and purging, obviously characteristic uh, of bulimia, which is has its own categorization. So, categorization. So it's a little, um, I guess, confusing is the best way to say it. Right, right. So I looked into it a little more, and it looks like anorexia, like you were saying, is is the hallmark of it is calorie restriction. But apparently some people who suffer from anorexia every once in a while will binge and purge. So it can include that. Okay. Yes. But bulimia doesn't necessarily involve any sort of even like weight component. Um, it, and it doesn't include any kind of calorie restriction. It is strictly binging and purging. That's right. So you've got these two different things, but they're both related in that your relationship with food is just not healthy in any way, shape, or form. And the the other thing that really kind of ties the two things together is that they're based on a disturbed body image where you look in the mirror and what you see doesn't reflect reality at all. You might see yourself as maybe normal if it's on a good day. You probably more often than not see yourself as overweight, fat, gross, disgusting, any number of horrible things you could say about yourself, where if someone else is looking at you, they would be like, wow, this person really needs to eat fast because they're emaciated, their skin and bones. But the anorexia patient or bulimia patient does not see that at all. And so that kind of continues the cycle of either calorie restriction or binging and purging. But they're, they're both after the same goal, essentially. Right. And included, and we're going to talk a lot about the symptoms and behaviors of uh, people that suffer from both of these, but uh, a lot of uh, scale work, weighing yourself a lot, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes, you know, multiple times during a day, obsessing over like, you know, half pounds. I saw like where digital scales are really sort of a culprit yeah. in, you know, obsessing over like a tenth of a pound, an eighth of a pound, yep. um, being really upset over the gaining of any weight, uh, even if it's just a half a pound, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you said, the language around food and body and self-image is really important um, because this can often be one of the early indicators uh, or just an indicator for friends and family if you listen to how people talk because a lot you know most of the stuff is done behind closed doors and one of the big components one of the sad components is is staying in a lot and not eating out with people and mm-hmm. keeping all that very private so the words are really really important here 
Yeah, because, I mean, if you have anorexia and you're engaging in, like, severe calorie restriction, you know, that doesn't just stop when you go out with friends. It's, right. it's It is a part of you. I've seen it uh, described akin to a relationship, like a very intense, obsessive yeah. relationship where the, the patient and this disorder are super tight. It's like their life, right? So if you're out and you're hanging out with friends and trying to appear normal, there's all sorts of stuff you have to do to make it look like you've eaten, hiding food, offering other people food, um, trying to make a big deal about, you know, what you did eat, like really showing everybody, look, I ate this. Um, just just engaging in kind of some obvious and bizarre behavior. And that's exhausting. So it's kind of like what you said that ultimately results in the person just withdrawing from social activities because it's not worth like keeping up appearances. Yeah. And as far as uh, bulimia goes, uh, you know, intentionally vomiting after a meal, um, one of the hallmarks is excusing yourself very quickly after a meal, mm -hmm. and that's if you are over the social component. You are actually eating out with friends right. or family, uh, and then those laxatives, uh, taking you know unhealthy doses of laxatives, uh, laxatives to induce uh, diarrhea as quickly as possible, um, and some other stuff. You know, uh, trying to sweat off additional weight. Um, you know, wearing like a, a plastic suit and sitting in a, a sauna, like really extreme measures right. uh, or just excessive exercise to try and get rid of the extra weight. Right. So, so what you have then is somebody who is convinced that they're overweight, first of all, even when they're not. And secondly, is obsessed with the idea of getting rid of that additional weight. Um, and they do it by engaging in unhealthy behaviors with food. And depending on how they do it, you've got anorexia or you have bulimia. And um, there's some symptoms, some of which we kind of just went over, but some are, are kind of obvious. Um, some are red flags. Um, you know, like if somebody starts to become very thin to where you can see their bones, um, that's a big sign that they have uh, anorexia. Uh, but, it, it, they, you know, you can have anorexia and not ever necessarily become emaciated. Um, I think the diagnosis as far as the American Psychological Association is concerned is if, you, if a patient comes to you and they weigh 15% less than their normal weight uh, for their height and age, you would be able to diagnose them with anorexia, or at the very least, you should start asking them questions about whether or not they have anorexia. Yeah, and uh, bulimia is very complex too, uh, because there's not one pattern. It's not, it's not always just binge and purge every day. Mm -hmm. Although it can mean that uh, sometimes, if you suffer from bulimia, you will eat. Um, you won't binge. You'll just eat normal meals and then purge those. Uh, sometimes you will restrict eating. Um, just sort of as a rule, but then occasionally you will binge and then purge, like eat, you know, a huge, enormous meal, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, binge eating is a, is a whole different uh, eating disorder that, you know, all of these are sort of related and have some overlap. But mm -hmm. I think for this, uh, this show, we're just going to kind of concentrate on anorexia and bulimia, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, binge eating disorder, it, it, I think it deserves its own thing because it's so prevalent and so many people have it and don't even realize it. Yeah. Which I suspect has to do with the food supply. I think oh, we've think? been inadvertently um, addicted to food. Um, have you, I, I told you about that, that book, The Dorito Effect, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, like, and the premise of it is that, like, to feed this many people, we've had to basically create franken foods right and to make them taste good we've had to use these different additives and artificial flavors and colors and all this stuff and the the kind of idea behind it is that in doing this we've accidentally created these things that are super addictive and people have become addicted to food it's just a very common thing whether it was intentional or unintentional at this point it doesn't really matter yeah people are just addicted to terrible food that's really bad for them yeah so as far as the uh, the symptoms go, you know, we talked about some of them, uh, you know, the obvious ones that you could, as a friend or family member, maybe notice as far as the exercise, uh, not eating in public and stuff like that, mm -hmm. the preoccupation with weight. But um, physically, you know, uh, you're, you can lead to things like brittle hair, yeah. um, difficulty thinking, uh, fainting and passing out. Uh, and that's, you know, stuff that people might notice in public. Uh, something that they may not see on the inside is anemia, uh, chronic fatigue, constipation, um, slowed pulse, 
Uh, and then I hadn't heard of this, uh, a growth of fine hair on the body, that lanugo that mm-hmm. in newborn babies is one of the most adorable little things, this little furry, right. furry fuzz on a baby. Yeah, supposedly there's some waxy substance that covers the baby in the womb and prevents them from getting chapped and chafed by the amniotic fluid. Yeah. And that lanugo hair kind of grows in like this this kind of downy fine fur that lets that waxy substance stick to the skin. Yeah. And I guess interesting. if you if you become malnourished it triggers lanugo to grow like later on in life. Yeah. That's a that's a big sign. Another one is um amenorrhea. Yeah. Which is the absence of um menstruation or menstrual periods, right? And that used to be like, even I knew that as like a, a sixth grade boy or something back in the 80s. Like that was like a huge thing. If if a girl didn't have a period, it meant she had anorexia. And apparently the DSM-5, the latest version said, no, we're going to take that out because it's not the case with everybody. Like, yes, it definitely can lead to that. And if you have amenorrhea, there's a possibility it's from anorexia. But if you uh, have anorexia, it doesn't mean you're going to um, stop having your period. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know... If, I wonder how many, like, 14-year-old girls listening to this we just lost because I said period twice. <laughs> Hopefully Hang none. Hang in there. Hang in there, everybody. this is uh, exactly who should be listening to the show. Yes. And if we're talking about girls and women more, uh, and we'll get to the stats, they mm-hmm. suffer from anorexia and bulimia more than men do. But that is not to say that men don't suffer from it, and they absolutely do. Um I mean, I might as well go over a few of these. I have some other statistics I found. Okay. Uh, at least 30 million people of all ages and genders suffer from eating disorder uh, in the United States, and that's mm-hmm. all eating disorders. Uh, every 62 minutes, at least one person dies as a direct result uh, from an eating disorder. Wow. Um, the, a few of these are just so sad. Uh, eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any mental illness, period. I saw that, I saw that too. Uh, 13% of women over the age of 50, 13% engage in eating disorder behaviors. I saw 3.5% can have, um, like, or have a diagnosable eating disorder. 3.5% over the age of 50 or 40? Over 40, yeah. And that, that midlife eating disorder thing is like a, a big and growing problem right now. Yeah, I mean, we, we'll, you know, we talk about adolescence a lot in here, but it's not something restricted to, uh, to young people. Um, this one is super sad as well. 16% of transgender college students have reported an eating disorder. Uh, boy, these are so sad to read out loud. Um, 50 to 80% of the risk for either one is genetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll talk about the genetics of it a little later too. And then more than half of bulimia patients have comorbid anxiety disorders. Yeah, I saw that too. It was like, I saw something like 50% of people with anorexia have, I think, anxiety, and like 95% or something of, of people with bulimia uh, have, a, have anxiety disorder. Yeah, anxiety disorders, mood disorders, uh, substance abuse disorders. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says usually alcohol. It's one in 10 bulimia patients. So it's just, you know, these are the worst kind of statistics to read off, but it's important to know that it's, it's across the gender spectrum, across the age spectrum. Uh, if if you think that it's just something teenage girls go through, that's just not the case. Yeah, and not just teenage girls. For a long time, it was a teenage white girl problem, and they're starting to realize, like, no, this is, it was like you were saying, like, it, it spans ethnicities, genders, nationalities, uh, ages. It's it's a much bigger problem than, than we used to think, and I don't know if it's become a bigger problem or if just under awareness and understanding of right. it has grown or something like that. But did you mention suicide? Uh, I don't think I did. So you were saying that this is, and this is one of the reasons we're talking about this, um, anorexia and bulimia are one of the, maybe the deadliest mental disorder there is as far as statistics go, like you were saying. And one of the big reasons is because so many people with anorexia or bulimia die by suicide, something like 200 times, at a 200 times greater rate than the general population. Yeah, it says here one in five of anorexia deaths is by suicide. And then, 
if it's not by suicide, there's a host of other ways that you can die from anorexia. You can simply starve to death where your yeah. you you um your heart can stop, your organs can shut down, and it's from this lack of energy that you're putting into your body, your your body's organs start to um, kind of slow down to and metabolize more slowly to kind of conserve what little energy they do have. And eventually, it just doesn't work any longer. Your body stops, basically, and you can die just from not eating. Not because there wasn't any food. There was plenty of food, and everyone who was around you wanted you to eat. You just wouldn't do it because you felt fat. Yeah, and I I don't even think it's a lot of times a matter of if. I mean, if you don't get treated and you don't get help and it gets bad enough, then you, you will die from organ failure at some point. Yes, but we have to say we don't want to get all like horribly grim because there are studies that are coming out now that are saying, actually, we've been studying these people for like 25 years, and we're finding that over the long haul, you can cure anorexia for good. It just takes a while. And it also, from what I've seen, takes a patient who wants to be cured. Right. Absolutely. Uh, And then one more thing here, if uh, we do need to talk about puberty and adolescence because it can have really... Um, long-lasting effects, if that's uh, the time of your life where this is happening, Mm -hmm. Uh, long-term effects on your development, um, on your growth. Uh, If you, I I think it says if you uh, have anorexia beginning at age 10 all the way through your 20s, -hmm. uh, you can have permanent stunted growth. You can have reduced uh, secondary sexual characteristics like um, your pubic hair won't grow in, your breasts won't develop, mm. uh, and maybe a lack of menstruation from the beginning, not like the cessation of menstruation. Right. Like you may never get your period. Right, and you may be infertile, as a matter of fact, as an adult. That's right. So, yeah, just because of the age that it's uh, the um, the age that it sets on, I mm-hmm. guess, um, is such an important time for the development of your body. It's like the last time you should be like, oh, I'm just not going to eat for a couple of days. Yeah. Um, it has some real sweeping effects for sure. Yeah, and bulimia too for uh, for its part uh, is really rough on the teeth. Um, yellowing, decaying teeth, sensitive teeth, uh, swollen, sore throat, acid reflux, like all the time. Um, and then, you know, electrolyte imbalances, being in the bathroom a lot because yeah. you're, you're, you're tricking your body essentially into thinking it's getting some nutrition – and then getting rid of that food really quickly and that nutrition really quickly. Right. Uh, and that can lead to, you know, fainting, fatigue, and eventually heart attacks and strokes. Yep. Serious so, stuff. Yeah, it is extraordinarily serious stuff. And a lot of people are like, well, it's just, you know, this is how my daughter or my sister or my friend likes to look. She likes to be skinny. And this is a really persistent problem with dealing with anorexia is that um, I've seen it multiple places. It's not a lifestyle. It's a right. mental health disorder. Yes. And it has to be treated because, again, it is, statistically speaking, the deadliest mental health disorder there is. Should we take a break? Yes. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back with a whole list of jokes. <laughs> That's right. Okay, Chuck, lay us lay the first joke on us. All right, I have no jokes. <laughs> Although I will say, uh, I think we it's time for a great sidebar. Okay, um, you know we we got one of those uh, home. Uh, I'm not going to buzz market anyone, but one of those home units that you'd speak to, and it tells you the weather and stuff. Like one of those robots. <laughs> yeah, like a little robot you put robot on your desk. Butler. <laughs> I've been testing it out with my daughter lately, and those robots that talk to you can tell jokes. Did you know that? Uh, yes, I did. And they, some of them are kind of funny, and they're all kind of great for four-year-olds. Well, what you got? Oh, I mean, none of. I mean, <laughs> some Thanksgiving jokes around this time, and they. they I think they try to be uh, topical, topical jokes. Sure. So there's like Christmas and Thanksgiving jokes going on right now. But you're not going to tell us one of the jokes. No, I'm trying to remember some of them. I mean, trust me, they're they're not great jokes for adults, but four-year-olds eat it up. It's, they're probably like deeply copyrighted too. 
Maybe. I don't know if you can copyright <laughs> these kind of dumb jokes. A Thanksgiving joke? You kidding me? It's like what our country is founded on. Yeah, all right. But, Copywriting uh, Thanksgiving jokes. <laughs> so that, that's been going on at our house is a lot of joke telling and uh, they can make burp noises and toot noises and it's uh I'm I'm trying to test the limits of how blue they can go. <laughs> Remember that little handheld box we had that would make different like fart sounds and sure. honking sounds? Yeah, so basically this is what this is is a high tech kind robot of. butler that makes <laughs> fart sounds. Yeah, it's great. Is it on wheels? No, it's not on wheels. It's uh, no, it's okay. it sits on your uh, nightstand or wherever you want it. I got you. So, all right, enough enough fun and games. Yeah, I, we should talk a little bit about the causes of anorexia because this is one of the more confounding. Um, well, I mean, a lot of mental health disorders are, are confounding in this way, actually, but we don't know the cause of it. Um, it, it is probably a lot of causes. Um, some of them may conflict with one another, but it is probably a very uh, complex bag and mix of uh, societal pressures, uh, which we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. uh, your environment, and then genetics uh, look like they do play a part. Yeah, they, they think that it's a, this is, get this, man, this is what they call a grab bag catch-all. Yeah. That there is a biopsychosocial mechanism underlying anorexia and bulimia. Yeah. That's biological, psychological, and social. And they're probably right. I mean, there's probably components of all of them put together, which would explain why it's so hard to understand at this point. And so hard to treat. It's very tough because it's not like you can point to one thing mm-hmm. and say, correct this part of your life. Right. And uh, Do it. Yeah, and it'll be better. It's like it's there's so many prongs. It's really, really tough. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, think about it. Like if you have a, a, a person who has uh, anorexia and they want to get better, but the reason that they developed anorexia in the first place uh, is because they have a parent who's on them about their weight all the time. Yeah. You have to correct the parent's behavior in addition to you know, possibly treating the um, the patient in the hospital for malnourishment. Like, it is yeah. a big, complex ball of stuff. But it there is. are there are studies that have kind of turned up like little little bits here or there. Like, oh, here's a here's a little a, a little I don't know, like a a, hot, a matchbox car or something in a pile of rocks. I'm not sure what that means. What's something you want? It, like a diamond in the rough, basically. Okay. <laughs> Haven't you ever found a matchbox car on a pile of rocks? And been like, I was really glad that I found this. I thought it was just some dumb, boring pile of rocks. I've, I've never, I have no idea where you're going there. Well, But I'm glad we got a laugh out of this. <laughs> I was being serious. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, are you talking about the study, the twin study? I'm talking about all the studies. Okay. <laughs> well, they did do a twin study and they found, as in studying human twins, not right. two different studies that look alike. <laughs> but uh, they found that if, and this is this is sort of helps back up evidence of uh, a genetic component, but if one twin has anorexia, then uh, their identical twin, not fraternal, mm. yeah, um, was 29 to 50% um, more likely to also have that same disorder. Right. But not, like you said, among fraternal twins. Because, so, cause, I mean, you'd think like, you know, you see identical twins and, and think like, what did your mother do to you to how, how could this be allowed to go on? But if that's not the case with fraternal twins, then that removes that environmental component. That's and right. And strongly suggests that it's a genetic component. Yeah. And maybe to some degree a social component. I mean, not all the time, but I would imagine fraternal twins are generally um, subjected to this or similar social components. Yes. The only thing that would confound that is fraternal twins can also be b- uh, like like boy and girl. Oh, sure. So, I mean, if the if they tossed out the boy and girl and just had like fraternal twin girls or fraternal twin boys in right. the study, I would say that would strongly suggest it's a genetic component. But, I mean, in, in any home, a boy and a girl are going to be treated, or a son and a daughter is going to be treated differently. It's just the way it is. True. Um, Unless you live in a Skinner box. <laughs> oh, gosh. That, that should lighten the mood. <laughs> <laughs> right. Unless your dad shocks you for studies at home. Uh, they did not, have not found a gene they can pinpoint. They have found 30, I'm sorry, 43 genes mm-hmm. that could potentially be of use uh, when it comes to linking genetics to these disorders. But... They haven't. It's nothing is very clear cut at this point. Right. So that's the that's about as far as they've gotten on the biological component. Um, as far as the psychological component, like you were saying, they found there's a lot of comorbidity mm-hmm. with other um, 
other behavior disorders and personality disorders like depression, anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, they bear a lot of resemblance to one another in that um, like with, with anorexia or bulimia, something called ritualized food behaviors mm-hmm. develop where um, you cut food into small pieces first to make it seem like there's more or make it seem like you are... Um, are uh, like eating more than you right. actually are, but the what makes it ritualized is you couldn't eat food any other way, right? Or you have to arrange food a certain way on the plate before you eat it, or even like uh, religiously counting and tracking calories is considered a ritualized food behavior, and it really kind of traipses into the the realm of something like obsessive compulsive disorder or experiencing yeah. anxiety if you're forced to eat food on a plate that's not arranged in the way that you're used to. So the idea is that you eat one English pea at a time. You are you are taking a lot of bites, and therefore, hey, look, I'm eating a lot. Yeah, that's kind of more deceptive behavior, and that uh-huh. would probably be like a twofer or well, something. I mean, I mean, self-deceptive even, you know? Sure, sure, but also deceptive to like your parents who might right. be watching you like a hawk or something. You're like, no, no, look I at all I see that fork moving a lot, yeah. Exactly. It's really interesting. But if you couldn't eat peas any other way but that, right. then that would be a ritualized food behavior. Right. Uh, this statistic, uh, as far as meeting criteria for at least one other mental health disorder, it's 56% Mm-hmm. of anorexia patients, and 95% for bulimia. Yeah. That is really high. Yeah, and that's and you, you know the, that's what makes it weird that the two are so overlapped because so you've got anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, and again, they each have their own separate entries in the DSM. Mm-hmm. But then there's a kind of a binge and purge bulimia component to anorexia. But the personality disorders that, or even the types of personalities that engage in each one are really, really different. Mm-hmm. Like with uh, anorexia nervosa, um, the patients are usually low novelty seeking, so they're not like trying out new things. Right. They have a low emotional responsiveness, decreased pleasure, and reduced social spontaneity. That's typical of someone with anorexia nervosa. With bulimia nervosa, it's like kind of the opposite. They tend to be impulsive. Uh They look for new experiences, and they can have characteristics of a borderline personality disorder from what I've read. So they're like two totally different types of people, Mm -hmm. but engaged in the same behavior. And it's one of those things where it's like, okay, if you have two different types of people who are trying to do the same thing or trying to achieve the same end, what you know, what commonalities do they have? In, in exploring those commonalities, maybe we'll find, like, the answers to what causes eating disorders like this. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it does make a little bit of sense uh, when you look at the, the you know, like, someone suffering from anorexia would a- avoid going out to eat spontaneously with friends, let's say, mm-hmm. at all costs. Uh, someone with, with bulimia might jump right in there because, in their mind, they they may think that they have a solve for that behavior. Yeah. Which is, I'll excuse myself to the bathroom right afterward, and I can still go out with my friends and eat a a regular-sized meal. I think that's a really good point. So either way... That, that regardless of how that person is personality-wise, they're going to engage in trying to maintain their weight. But depending on their type of personality, they're going to choose this route or that route? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you're on to something, Dr. Chuck. <laughs> well, the other thing, too, is with these personality traits, they found correlation with things like perfectionism, uh, irritability, uh, and like you were talking about this, uh, sometimes being impulsive or sometimes the opposite. But th- what they found, too, is... Uh, You know, if you're studying adolescence and puberty, a lot of these are normal traits of adolescence. So it's really hard to distinguish sometimes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times these things, it's a chicken or the egg. These are caused by the eating disorder and not the other way around. Yeah, that also applies to differences in brain structure too. Yeah. Like they found things like um, a reduction in the gray matter and the white matter in the brain of Mm -hmm. people with one of the nervosas. Or um, they have more cerebral spinal fluid. And then other regions of the brain are smaller compared to people who don't have these disorders. But they clear up when the um, anorexia is successfully treated. Yeah. So that's, it's kind of, it really makes you wonder, like, where, you know, did it cause it or? Right. It, like, it doesn't, it doesn't prove or disprove it either way. It just, the two are related and we're not sure which causes which. Yeah, I thought this fMRI stuff was interesting because, you know, our motto, when in doubt, 
go into the wonder machine yep. and see what's lighting up. Be very instructive. Uh, and they did. <laughs> it's the longest motto ever. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Trademark. Can, can fit on the front and back of a t-shirt, <laughs> but not a hat or a coffee It just kind of peters out down the bottom. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and then the script to just, you know, like a pen, like you fall asleep while writing something. Right, yeah, right. So uh, the fMRI wonder machine has found that uh, it lights up. Those reward centers in the brain show increased activity um, if you have anorexia and you're shown photos of someone who is drastically underweight. So that's a, a pretty obvious, you know, sign right there. Uh, another one is uh, noticing fine details Mm-hmm. When you are shown a picture of your own face, that that reward w- response is just lighting up the reward center. So that that means that they are are hyper um, aware of their appearance at all times. Yep, for sure. And like they notice things that might not even be there. Right. Um, and then finally, you get to the social part of the biopsychosocial components, um, and that's the environmental factors and. One of the big ones that has kind of emerged is the idea of sexual abuse in creating anorexia nervosa or yeah. kickstarting it in, in um, people. I saw that, I think Johns Hopkins said sexual abuse has been reported in 20 to 50% of individuals wow. with anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, right? Mm. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to just be sexual abuse, but there is a consistent... Um, reporting of some sort of trigger, like the people who have bulimia and anorexia typically can point to the moment that it started or the thing that created this idea in their mind. It could be a parent being overly critical of their weight. It it oftentimes is a parent, I think. Yeah, it could be a coach who is overly critical of their weight. Mm -hmm. Um, It can be a, a bully teasing them about their weight. It could be a friend making a joke about their weight. It just depends on the moment. You know how like how something can bother you, but it doesn't seem to bother anybody else um, and vice versa, you know, something that bothers someone else. You're like, that's not that big of a deal. Yeah. But it's all just based on the person and the context and the setting and maybe even just that perfect combination of neurotransmitters that happen to be active in their brain right then and just something got them just right. That has been found to kickstart anorexia and bulimia under a lot of circumstances. Yeah, and it's just, for parents, it's so important how they talk about, uh, and not just to their kids, but any time your kid can hear you speaking words, Mm -hmm. how you talk about weight and how you talk about your own body and how you talk about health. And, um, you know, having a kid now, it's just, it's made me realize how, uh, unkind I can be to my own self mm-hmm. being overweight. And mm-hmm. you you can't say those things in front of a four-year-old. No. Y- you have to talk about um, health and, you know, daddy's exercising because daddy wants to be healthier and stuff right. like that. Yeah. Because it, you'd be surprised that, you know, these little ears, they hear it all. And um, the last thing that you want is for anything that you say to be uh, – to to have an impact on your child uh, in an unhealthy way about their body image. You know, it's just super, right. super important. And I think it's gotten <clears throat> much, much better than uh, than the old days when, you know, I know a lot of women who talk about, you know, whether or not they suffered from anorexia or not, uh, struggling with uh, their body image because um, most of the time mom talking about it growing up. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure dads play a part too, but... I've heard a lot of anecdotal examples of women talking about in this, you know, in the seventies, mom talking about, you know, you can't eat this, you can't eat that because you won't get a boyfriend or this won't happen or that won't happen. Right. And, um, that's, yeah, I've seen that a lot of places too, um, for researching this. But one of the other things I saw is like what you were saying, where you were talking about yourself, you have to watch what you say around your daughter. Yeah. When you say disparaging things about your ta- yourself, that's called fat talk. And it is like a pastime in the West, We're like getting yeah. getting together with friends or just having a, cup, a conversation around the water cooler or something about how fat you are or how much you ate and how much you, yeah. you need to lose weight. And that, they found, it can actually be a real driver for leading to um, eating disorders as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I make jokes all the time about that with you and everyone I know, but I don't use that word in my house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to stop myself from making jokes about myself. It's just, it's no good for anyone. 
you know? One, one question I have, though, is, like, I was a, a, a pretty, like, husky boy. You were robust? I was, very. Like, I had the, the Pillsbury Doughboy nickname, yeah. and, like, I mean, like, I was the fat kid in class for sure. And uh, it bothered me. It, like, really set the tone of my childhood in a lot of ways. Like, I had a really great childhood, and I loved it. Right. But I also had, like, a real bummer childhood in that sense, too. Yeah. Um, but... Like, what do you do when your kid is demonstrably overweight and needs to lose weight or else they're going to spend the rest of their life struggling with their weight, which is not fun at all? Like, what do you do? Like, how do you approach the the little fragile ego of a kid and know, say, man. we need to get some weight off of you, you know, without yeah. like, leading them down this path to an eating disorder? That's got to be one of the trickiest things you you would ever have to to talk about with your kid in that in that situation. Yeah. And, and also, especially now in a day where, uh, there's such a movement to be accepting of who you are, no matter how, what size you are. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just such a fine line to walk between good health and accepting who you are. Right. Like, I don't necessarily have a super poor self image, but I want to be alive in 30 years for my daughter, you know? Right. Sure. Like the vanity is kind of gone at this point. I'm 48 years old. (laughs) Right. But I want to be healthy, uh, yeah. and and those you know uh, a healthy weight goes hand in hand with not having the stroke and the heart attack later on. Exactly, but I think a lot of people would say like, okay, yes, there is health to be gained from eating better or from exercising or doing both, ideally. Um, but one of the problems that we have is this ideal where it's like, well, keep going until you have washboard abs and until you have like these amazing biceps. And yeah, that's not um, me. Until you just w- want to do nothing but walk around in a speedo or something like that. Yeah. And the fact that like those are the models that we see on the billboards that drives even that idea of health healthiness. Yeah. To this kind of perverted weird place that can kind of develop eating disorders as well. Yeah, that's not me. I, I have no illusions about ever having a washboard stomach. I've given up on those too. I don't want a washboard stomach. I, I, I want would, them I once just for, to see. Oh, yeah? <laughs> just to see what it's like. And then I'd be like, all right, give me a donut. I like a little softness to a body. It's nicer to, I, I to do hug too. on and lay around with. I don't want to. I, I do too. I mean, Emily doesn't want to put her head down on a washboard stomach. <laughs> right? <laughs> she doesn't want to bounce a nickel off of those? No. So I want I want to see what it would look like on me, and then that'd be fine. I'd be, <laughs> that's it. I don't really have like any. It's not my ideal look or anything like that. I just want to see if I could ever do it. Yeah, I just I just need to get healthier and drop some weight, and you know, feel a little bit better day to day, like moving around the world because well, it has an yeah. impact on that stuff too. That's the key: is feeling better day to day, feeling good in your clothes, feeling to the point where you're not thinking about what you're eating or how much you're exercising because you're getting enough. Right. That's the key, right there. That's the goal. Yeah. So, let's talk about social pressure because that's kind of we're right in the middle of it. Okay. Um, well, actually, let's take a break. Okay. I'm gonna go do some crunches. <laughs> right. I'm gonna hold your feet down. <laughs> then we're gonna we're gonna talk about social pressure right after this. So, Chuck, those were pretty good crunches. Not bad. Not bad at all. I'm going to go with a B plus. You know, I started seeing a trainer. Did you really? Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool, man. I didn't know that. I'm so, about like, a, about a month in. Like, like, kind of cool and supportive, or like drill instructor type, like no. Ernie Army. Uh, well, she is former Army. Funny enough, but uh, she is cool and supportive. Nice. And more than anything, it's just like I got to show up at her house three days a week mm-hmm. and do it. And yes. I, I can't, you know, I can't not do it. And that's, I am one person who will not do it if given any opportunity to not do it. Yeah, it's so easy to just shirk on that kind of stuff and just, you know, there's always reasons to not go or not do it or whatever. But if you have somebody there that yeah. like, you know, is motivating you, that definitely helps. Yep, nice. Good for you, man. Thanks, dude. It's, uh, she's killing me. She's kicking my butt. <laughs> right. But uh, it's, uh, it's what I need right now. So yeah. I could use one of those two, admittedly. (laughs) Throwing it out there. I'll give you your number. Michelle, she's great. Thanks, man. So uh, social pressures, we're talking about, uh, you know, this is from a Western point of view. 
here in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, Canada, some places in Europe, although that can vary pretty pretty greatly on how they look at their bodies there. Right. Uh, but definitely in the United States, uh, our culture has uh, demonstrably said loud and clear, thin is in, you got to be skinny, whether it's TV or advertising or Instagram now or YouTube. Um, it's starting to change a little bit more because yeah, there's sure. there's another whole wave that I was talking about, about accepting your accepting yourself and being happy with whatever size you are. Mm-hmm. But that still can't counter the onslaught that has happened for decades and decades in this country. No, but it is gratifying to see it changing over time. Like you see like plus size models everywhere. For and sure. It, like they don't, there's not like some big write up in people about how this daring um, company, clothing company used a plus size model anymore. It's just become a normal thing. Yes. It's becoming normalized. I think that's a big big component because a lot of people point to the mass media in the West as the main driver for eating disorders because they say this is the ideal weight, body mass index, um, body fat percentage. Go attain to this. Do whatever you need to do to get here. And if you don't, you're an ug face. (laughs) Right. What I think is super interesting about this, um, because everyone knows that, it's like, you know, sure, ads and models and and Instagram, like mm-hmm. that's that's stuff you should know. Chump change, <laughs> right? But what's really interesting <laughs> is to, is I mean, you know, we're not enlightening anyone as to that's not breaking news. Oh, I got what you meant. But uh, <laughs> what's really interesting to me is to look at all right. If it is media, what about pre-television? Like, has this stuff increased, or what about? non-Western cultures, what about if someone were to move over here from another country mm-hmm. where anorexia isn't very prevalent, um, how would they change? And it appears that that does have an impact. It does, but not like a night and day kind of thing like you'd expect. Like the studies aren't just backing one another up left and right to where, yes, it's the mass media. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's not the mass media. It just means that they haven't figured out how to control for all these confounding factors that also come along with something like moving to the U.S. as an immigrant um, and all the things that that come along with it in addition to being exposed to Western mass media. Or, you know, what else changed over time? Well, we got richer, food got cheaper, uh, junk food became more abundant. Yeah. Uh, maybe that has something to do with it and not just, you know, this this growing of mass media in the middle to late 20th century. So there's a lot of studies that do say, yes, there does seem to be a correlation. Just there's never been a smoking gun. It's like the same yeah. thing with violence in, in media or sex in media. Like the, uh, the idea that the media just has no effect on us whatsoever is is ridiculous to me, but I also suspect it doesn't have quite the pronounced effect on us that we like to think or, or just assume. Yeah, there, uh, like you said, there are just so many factors. You can't um, control all of them, but there are a couple of interesting findings. Uh, this one study, they found a rate of eating disorders uh, in places like uh, Iran, Singapore, and Japan um, increased among women who were exposed to Western culture either by being there for a little while or living there for a little while, even if it was just a vacation or through media, mm-hmm. and another one found that um, women who were at least one generation removed from immigration into Canada thought about dieting more than women who were immigrants themselves. Yeah, and, and dieting behavior is um, a very Western thing, and it's starting to spread elsewhere. Like, there's countries like Egypt and Iran and Japan and China um, where they're starting to notice eating disorders um, that are they're considered non-Western cultures, but they're again they're like, well, has the Western media kind of infiltrated those spaces more, or is it people who've spent time in the West who are now coming back home mm-hmm. and they've developed an eating disorder? What is it exactly? But there's a really big point to this that I think uh, is easily overlooked: is if if it is the Western media, and it is something like saying, here's this ideal body image get to it however you have to, a lot of people in the West engage in diets. 
And basically everybody in the West is exposed to that media. And yet less than 5% of people in the United States will ever develop an eating disorder in their lifetime. Why isn't it more prevalent if it's just the media or just trying to diet? You know, what is it that makes that extra step? And that, I think, is where that um, bio-psycho yeah. component comes in to the For whole sure. biopsychosocial thing. I think it's just kind of like a, a triple whammy that gets some people just right who may be genetically predisposed, who, who may be um, psychologically predisposed, and then the right combination of social factors all converge to make somebody develop anorexia or bulimia. Yeah, if you're an athlete, um, this is interesting because you can have medical complications as an athlete who has to drop weight. Um, either, you know, some some sports you, you have to have a lower weight, like if you're a dancer or a jockey or a gymnast or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, other times, like if you're a wrestler, you have to make a certain weight or a boxer, yeah. a weight class. And this is not the same thing. I mean, th- th- it can be unhealthy weight loss. It's not the same thing necessarily as anorexia, but it looks like that could be a trigger for uh, anorexia, you know, after you stop your athletic career. Yeah, it's like that part in, um, what was that that Channing Tatum, Steve Carell movie set in the 80s where he was the wrestler? Oh, yeah, the uh, Fox uh, whatever. Yeah, Fox Hawk or Fox... Fox Hound, Fox Blood. Something like that. <laughs> uh-huh. Anyway, where that part where he loses a match and he goes and just binges. Yeah. And I think his brother comes up and makes him like throw up because he's got to he's yeah. got to keep wrestling and he needs to make that that class that weight class. So the idea that that some people who engage in these sports kind of internalize that idea and that behavior and can become anorexic or um, bulimic uh, that like that just kind of makes utter and complete sense. Yeah. Same with the army too, or not just the army, but the military. Sure. Where they have, you know, weigh-ins and, and fitness benchmarks. If you miss those, you're in big trouble. So people will engage in this this kind of eating disorder like behavior, but they don't necessarily develop an eating disorder, although some people go on to do just that. Yeah, it says there is a, there is one study that found enrolling in the military uh, led to an increase in eating disorders. Yeah. It's interesting. Um in true stuff you should know fashion, we'll talk about history here at the end. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> I think all the other stuff was probably more important than, than the history and who first named it. Yeah. But we like to cover our bases. And uh, anorexia nervosa was named by Sir William Gull. He was uh, Queen Victoria's doctor. And he published a paper, and this hey, was— Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're just walking right past, like, one of the most interesting facts of the podcast? <laughs> you like that fact? All right, go yes. ahead. Yes. Right. No, you take it, man. I was being so generous. <laughs> oh, thank you, sir. Yeah. He, uh, he, Sir William Gull is one of the dudes who they— th- All right. You think this is interesting? Fine. He may <laughs> or may not have been Jack the Ripper. <laughs> yes. This guy who coined the term anorexia yeah, nervosa was, was one of the time. first to to describe it in a scientific paper. Is also one of the pe- one of the people that is liked for Jack the Ripper. Yeah, you just said it again. So why did I even bother? Because you didn't you didn't enjoy it enough. You didn't relish it enough. Okay, I got gotcha. you. So Jack the Ripper <laughs> published a paper uh, right. in 1873. Uh, and this is after treating uh, young women who, uh, by all appearances, had anorexia, what we now know as anorexia. Right. And you and, could tell it was he was Jack the Ripper because the paper started, Dear Boss. <laughs> That's <laughs> the so, first you line. Had that, how long have you been sitting on that one? <laughs> Buddy, that just came up right now. Really? Yeah. Why does it say Dear Boss on your paper? <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> so uh, he had uh, drawings in there. Um, eventually, he had photos in there of before and after treatments. And um, just like us today, he was uncertain about uh, the nature of the disorder to begin with. Right. Um, what we do know historically is the 1970s here in America is where it really kind of became a big thing. And uh, thanks to a couple of things, uh, in 1978, there was a, a very popular book published by uh, Hilda Bruch, uh, The Golden Cage, colon, The Enigma of Anorexia Nervosa, and Obviously, and super sad, um, Karen Carpenter was the face of anorexia in America. Mm-hmm. And America got to see her struggle off and on with this for years until she died uh, from complications from anorexia in 1983. 
Yeah, she died basically from organ failure from drinking too much Ipecac over yeah. the course of her life. It was a big deal in the United States. I mean, that really put it on the map in a big, big way. Yeah, so there is, like, if there's a silver lining to the death of Karen Carpenter, and there are very few of those, and if you're too young to know who Karen Carpenter is, do yourself a favor and go look up the Carpenters right now sure, and thank yeah. us later. and have fun listening to that. Yep. But Ipecac is an emetic, which means you drink it and it makes you throw up. And for the 20th century, maybe even the 19th century too, doctors recommended parents keep that stuff around their house. Oh, yeah. So if their dumb little kid ate, you know, rat poison under the sink, you'd give them some Ipecac, they'd throw it up and their yep. life would be saved. Well, they started to realize, especially after Karen Carpenter, that this Ipecac syrup was being abused by um, anorexia patients and bulimia patients uh, all over the U.S. And they apparently called for a ban on over-the-counter sales of Ipecac. And that directly came from Karen Carpenter's death. But I didn't see that it actually ever went through. Oh, really? Yeah. As, as recently as 2003, they were calling for a ban on non-prescription Ipecac sales. Huh. And un unless over-the-counter and non-prescription are not the same thing, then no, they didn't get it pushed through. Can you buy it today? Do you know at all? I, yeah, I, I mean, I believe at the very least you could get it from a pharmacist, but I I think you might be able to still buy it in a in a drugstore. I'm not sure. Haven't tried. And this was 2003, but I didn't see anything about it actually being banned. Well, uh, just really quickly, as you can see here, 2008 mm -hmm. is an article called Ipecac, the most dangerous over-the-counter drug. So, right. um, interesting. Yeah. So they've basically look just into that. Tarnish Karen Carpenter's memory. Yeah. So treatment is tough because, like we said, there are so many prongs. Um, and we don't want to be down on it because you can overcome this. Uh, but the obviously the end goal is is multi-pronged as well. What, what obviously you want just physically is um, to eat healthily again. Um, but another big part of that is to feel better about yourself and to have a better – uh, self-image, and to overcome this mental illness that's the underlying cause of mm -hmm. these physical symptoms. Yeah. Um, if you have a friend or a loved one or somebody you care about that has anorexia um, or bulimia, um, one of the things you can do is just be supportive and non-judgmental. Mm-hmm in the hopes of, like you were saying, kind of help build their self-esteem because it is definitely a crisis of self-esteem is a big component of it. But the, what you don't want to do is make them feel bad or shameful for right. not eating. Um, you don't want to focus on the food because it's really not the food. The food is almost like a convenient... Um, basically, the food is the one thing that, say, a, a teenage girl can control in her life in some cases. Right. How much she eats or doesn't eat. And this becomes manifested in anorexia nervosa. So the idea that, that no, just eat the food. What's your problem with food? It really doesn't have much to do with the food. The food is just this um, kind of red herring in the whole thing. Yeah, the food is almost like the drug, except the idea is to not take the drug, if that makes any sense. It does not. I just <laughs> I thought that was making sense as it was coming out of my mouth. I started right. to realize it didn't. Yeah, right up to the end. Uh, treating it is uh, can be done on an outpatient basis. Um, they have high calorie supplements, uh, dietary recommendations. Obviously, mm -hmm. um, if you have serious medical complications, you might have to have a hospital stay. But they have shown that just putting someone in the hospital has no improvement on the outcome uh, of their mental health. Like, you you right. really have to attack it from all angles. Yeah, and that's a big problem, too, is, like, when you have a medical, like, medical issues, like a low pulse um, and you are, say, emaciated, like, they're going to take you to the hospital, and the doctors are not necessarily psychologists or psychiatrists. They're doctors who are going to try to treat your emaciation or treat your low pulse, Um and that's good. You need that kind of treatment, but it doesn't actually heal the anorexia at all. Um, so there has to be a multi-pronged approach. And in particular, if you do need to be nourished, like you're at death's door because you haven't eaten in too long and your body's become malnourished and your organs are starting to fail, um, you have to go to a, a, a specialist in this. Because I think we talked about in the Angus Barbieri short stuff. Mm -hmm. 
the idea of refeeding syndrome, where if you introduce nutrients too quickly to somebody who hasn't eaten in too long, yeah. they can die basically from overdosing on nutrients. Yeah. So you have to go to a specialist in, in refeeding. It's not just something that anybody can do. The, ideally, you will catch this long before you could die from refeeding syndrome or anything like that. But yeah. it is it is a it is a concern and an issue that you would want to go to a specialist physician for refeeding. Yeah, and it's um we were talking about parents earlier too. It's also interesting that early on Gull and this continued for a while, um, felt that, you know, the parents were could be a big part of the problem in this negative influence. Um, especially if like it's all of a sudden it is being treated and parents like, you know, you need to eat, you need to eat this, you need to eat that. Uh, and so they would they would move kids out of the home yeah. in order to treat them more successfully, uh, because a lot of times the parents were contributing to the the whole cause and to begin with, you know. Yep, they would call that a parentectomy. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's what Gold called it. Um, and so that's like one theory of treatment, that the parents are the problem and you need to get the kid away from the parents. Not not like get them into foster care or anything like that. Right. But more that the the kids are, are being oppressed in some way f- by the parents. And Hilda Brooke, B-R-U-C-H. Mm-hmm. I'm going with Brooke. Um, in the book. Yeah, the one, one who wrote the who wrote the Golden Cage. Yeah, she concluded that the reason for anorexia was that the teenagers were afraid of becoming teenagers. That they just pleased the adults and their parents their whole life, and they were afraid to kind of venture out on their own. Um, and so this was some means of control. Maybe I'm not sure, but it definitely goes in with that parentectomy thing, where if you take the kid out and um, teach them to take on this disorder on their own, it can really boost their self-esteem quite a bit and potentially cure anorexia as it is. That's one theory. Yeah. There's another that basically is the opposite. It says, hey, family, let's, yeah. let's get together and help this. That's right. It's like a family therapy. It's it's the Maudsley method. And uh, this was based on the work of a psychiatrist named Salvador, not Maudsley, <laughs> Salvador uh, Mnuchin. Yes. It's not the Mnuchin method, though. No one knows who Maudsley is. Maybe that was his hotel pseudonym. Maybe. But this is, like you said, this and this makes a lot of sense, too. Like, getting the whole family in there, because uh, if you go to therapy as a family or as Metallica, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bear fruit, most likely, because uh, especially with something like anorexia and bulimia, that's, there may be a lot of tendrils throughout your family that is uh, is potentially causing some of this to begin with. So right. get mom and dad in there, get brothers and sisters in there, and yeah. and I'll talk it out. It'll probably help everyone involved. Get weird Uncle Al in there. Oh, no. Whoever. He, just keep him at Thanksgiving and keep him <laughs> so, quiet. But one of the things I saw about that family method is one of the techniques they'll use is called externalizing, where, they're say, where they basically say, you have an interloper in your family known as this eating disorder. And you need to come together as a family to get this eating disorder out of your family. Right. Like you, like you guys gang up as a family against the eating disorder, not against the person with the eating disorder or against one another. Gang up on the eating disorder and support the person with it to help them. Right. Which is great. And like we said, you can recover from an eating disorder. Yes. Johns Hopkins says that 50 to 75% of patients with anorexia or bulimia will eventually recover. How That's many? a lot. 50 to 75%. That's that great. is a really great recovery rate for what is ultimately um, a chronic mental disorder. Yeah, and can we shout out a website here? Yeah. There is uh, a website called alsana.com, mm-hmm. and it is an eating disorder helpline uh, of all stripes. So anorexia, bulimia, um, I would imagine binge eating, any kind of eating disorders, you can call 888-822-8938 at any time, and someone is going to be there and try and help you out. Nice, just, Chuck. And, you know, we talk about it all the time. Just that first step is super crucial. Yep. Good job. Thanks. You too. Uh, well, if you want to know more about eating disorders like anorexia or bulimia, you can go to uh, where Chuck just sent you, or you can pick up the phone and call. And uh, you can also just hold tight and wait for listener mail, which is coming right now. That's right. And yeah, we we should mention there are, there are many, many, many helplines. Yeah. Uh, and many organizations. So. But again, I, everything I've seen is if you suspect that your friend or loved one or sister or son or daughter 
has an eating disorder, like you, you need to confront it. They don't just clear up on their own, and it's not just a lifestyle choice. Yeah, that's right. The National Eating Disorder Helpline uh, is another one, 800-931-2237. Nice. Scroll we need to put down. that in our, in our slogan, our motto on the T-shirt. <laughs> well, how about this? Uh, I don't have a great listener mail today, so let's just encourage everyone to uh, look out for their friends and family. And if you have someone in your family that you think may be suffering from one of these uh, disorders, then uh, reach out to them mm-hmm. uh, with compassion. Yeah. And if you have one of these disorders, call one of those numbers and just take that first step toward getting some help. Yeah. Very nice, Chuck. Thanks. I think that was even better than any listener mail. Of course. I've heard a lot of listener mail. Anything's better was, than listener mail. That Come was on. tops. <laughs> uh, we're just kidding. We love listener mail. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com. And we've got all our social links hanging out around there. And you can also send us a good old-fashioned email. Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.